Hello, and welcome to Partially Redacted, a podcast where we discuss privacy and security engineering related topics. I'm your host, Shel Falconer, and today I'm joined by Ashley Doe's product lead at Skyflow. And we'll be taking a look back at some of the topics covered in the Partially Redacted episodes from 2022 and discussing various themes from those episodes, as well as answering some listener questions. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sean. I'm looking forward to a great conversation. Awesome. Yeah. So thanks for being here. And since this is the first time you've been on, let's start off by having you introduce yourself. Can you please share your career background and you know how you got to where you are today? Sweet. Uh, yeah. So my first job after my engineering degree in electronics engineering was working as a commissioning executive at an open source technology based book publishing company. So my job there was to evaluate around 300 book proposals every week and make a decision on if we should publish them or not. And that was my first introduction to open source uh, technology and basic product management skills with respect to just figuring out what to build. So after that, I completed my master's in information systems at Carnegie Mellon, uh, which was, I think, a great program designed for technology executives. Uh, where I was introduced to con- concepts in enterprise technology, such as uh, service-oriented architecture, enterprise service buses, and so on. Um, and this uh, led me to joining MuleSoft, which was a startup back then, um, and they were trying to build a platform for integration as a service. Um, so I joined MuleSoft as one of the initial members of the product team there, worked on several different initiatives, including uh, developer adoption, Um, their connectivity product, which is a simple point-and-click interface to connect multiple different SaaS applications. I went on to lead uh, the platform services team at MuleSoft, which was responsible for uh, identity, authorization, and the permissioning model. Um, And this is where I was really introduced to the concept of how do you really control access to data in, in software? And I was just really intrigued by that field. Um, So MuleSoft went public in uh, 2017, was acquired by Salesforce, and then I went on to work at Salesforce in their platform team. I was leading a service called the Connected Apps Framework, which was the service powering the Salesforce App Exchange, uh, which we had about 10 million applications installed using the service. And the service was, was responsible for figuring out how data moves in and out of Salesforce. So at that point in my career, I had uh, some experience working at a growth stage startup, had an experience working at a uh, very large enterprise scale SaaS business. So I was really curious about what it would be like working for a very early stage company. And that curiosity led me to uh, joining Skyflow as the first product manager there. So I was employee number 11. Uh, We had just closed our seed state funding. We had no product in the market, no customers yet. So it was a very interesting journey for me personally from a career perspective. So at Skyflow, I worked on um, shipping the first version of the product, uh, worked on our governance uh, product, which basically controls access to sensitive data. We launched our connections product, which basically uh, is a proxy service, which allows you to integrate third-party services with Skyflow uh, such that your, uh, your backend is not exposed to any sensitive data. We recently also launched um, a workflow engine, which is a way to run custom compute and workflows within Skyflow's compliant architecture. So that's been my experience so far and my journey so far in in enterprise uh, software. Awesome, yeah. Um, 
you're always been my go-to resource at Skyflow whenever I need to know something. Uh, what was the historical reason for doing something? Because you've been you've been on the team for for so long uh, and been involved in so many of the decisions that were made along the way. With, how big was MuleSoft when you actually joined, and how big was it when you left? So MuleSoft, when I joined, was around 250 employees, and when I left, it was about 1,200 to 1,600 employees. Um, and then it got absorbed into like the 50,000 employee uh, company uh, in Salesforce. So, <laughs> so not quite uh, uh, less than 10, but it's definitely a big jump from you know 250 to uh, in the thousands there. So. You know, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're we're talking about we're looking back on some of the prior episodes. So we're basically breaking format today from uh, a lot of the 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 kind of um, episodes that we've done. This is really like a special episode, and not just special because uh, you're here, Ashley. Although that is special in its own way, but it's special more like an all new special episode of Blossom from like NBC's TGIF lineup circa 1994. So this is the last episode of Partially Redacted in 2022. We'll be back, so don't worry about that if you're listening. Um, and we'll be back in January with a whole new set of shows and, and amazing guests. But I thought it would be fun and different for our final episode of the year to look back at the 17 prior episodes that we've done since we launched in September and discuss some of the big themes and notable insights our guests have had. So I was originally going to kind of fly solo on this episode, but I thought I'd save everyone from having to listen to just me and invite a guest on to have some more back and forth as we made our way through some notable topics in past shows. All right, so let's kick things off. Are you ready, Ashley? Yep. Okay, so I did two shows focused on privacy education. One was with Jake Ward, CEO at Denver Data Protocol, and one was with Dr. Lori Trainer, Director and Professor in Security and Privacy Technologies at Carnegie Mellon University. The Master's CMU program has been around for like a decade, and according to Dr. Trainer, there's been more and more interesting growth in the program over time. A few years ago, they added a certificate program that's focused on supplemental training for people already working in the industry to learn the basics of privacy engineering. And this is similar to some of the work from the Data Protocol uh, company, which is an education platform designed for developers. One of their most popular courses is privacy engineering certificate course. So I've always thought like there hasn't been enough sort of privacy and security education as part of a typical computer science degree what are your thoughts on this? Should all CS undergrads have to take a course in privacy? Yep, you're right in saying that there's not much focus currently on security or privacy in a typical CS degree. So now the onus then falls on this fresh CS graduate to pick up these skills while on the job. And, and this oftentimes depends on the security culture of the company that they're part of and the maturity of their security practice. So I think However, lack of education is only part of the problem here. Um, top educational institutions typically design their coursework around employability. So unless companies that hire developers expect them to be well trained in these domains, I fear the status quo will remain. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I hadn't really thought of that. Uh, the idea that, you know, the, obviously like universities want their graduates to be employed and they also, uh, so they're going to essentially train them in the things that are going to lead to employment the most. It's like we need, uh, it's almost like a chicken and egg problem where we need people that have more of this education, but in order to get more of that education, we need more industry to essentially demand that education to be there in the first place. Yep. I think that's right. I think the larger problem here is 
generally awareness around what are the best practices around storing and processing sensitive data and what are some of the tools and best practices available for companies to really implement a great security practice from day one. Another thing that came up on a few shows that relates to this that I think is interesting to discuss is how privacy is starting to be considered an engineering problem rather than simply a compliance issue. More advanced companies in the space are no longer viewing privacy as a process of you know taking off a compliance checklist, but it being a product differentiator in the right thing to do for their customers. By making privacy an engineering or product problem, you end up naturally shifting privacy left because it becomes part of the design process rather than being an afterthought. What are some of your thoughts on this trend? Yeah, so when I uh, started my career, um in the early 2010s, uh, every tech company in the Valley had an InfoSec team and this team's responsibility was to ensure that the product stays compliant. And they did so by using a very process heavy approach. Now, although important, in hindsight, when you look at it, this is just a band-aid solution to the problem of information security and privacy. Um, this approach clearly reflected the general sentiment at the time that privacy was an afterthought. Um, another challenge with this approach that gets discussed less frequently is the amount of effort required to implement the solution at scale as it's very process intensive. So now each time you have a new compliance initiative, you would need to fund a new program and get product scrum teams aligned around priorities. And from personal experience, I can tell you that product and edge teams do not really enjoy working on tasks that are not product feature related. And this then creates like friction between uh, the SecOps team and the product team. Um, in recent years, however, the customer sentiment around privacy has changed. Uh, and now you can see that it's a top topic of discussion at the board level. And company executives are beginning to place customer trust as one of the most important values in the yearly plans, right? And another exciting trend is that some companies are beginning to use privacy as a product differentiator. Now, when this happens, privacy becomes a product feature and not a compliance blocker. And when product teams view privacy as a feature, it then becomes a line in that initial product requirements talk, which then becomes a solution in the architecture design, which then becomes an advertisement on the 101 billboard. So do you mean by thinking about privacy as a feature more, it's incorporated essentially into the product life cycle of the, uh, of, of the designs. Yes, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. That way it essentially naturally shifts things left because it's part of essentially that design cycle. Yes. Yeah. There's something that, um, uh, Pramod Raghavendran from Coinbase had talked about in the, the episode that we did on privacy engineering was it was his perspective essentially that privacy engineering or privacy program should live in engineering a product essentially for this reason so that it naturally creates a culture of, of a privacy centric company. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, listening to promo in that uh, episode. Mm -hmm. So you know, another thing that promote and uh, as well as Jordan Wrigley had talked about um, during their episodes was the, how the culture of privacy is changing in how the concept of personal privacy is, you know, a very cultural specific issue. How do you think a customer's cultural background impacts how business needs to think about protecting customer data? 
is a very interesting question, right? So I think there's a great quote by Charlie Munger from Berkshire Hathaway. He says, uh, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. And I think this applies very well to data privacy. So now when you think about sensitive customer data, right, there's generally three categories of businesses. There are companies that store sensitive data for operational purposes. Uh, for example, like FinTech and health tech companies. Um, there are businesses that make money by monetizing customer data. Uh, for example, like businesses in advertisement or insurance. Um, and there's companies that store information about their customers without any business just justification whatsoever. And this often happens due to a lack of awareness on security best practices. So now you can view data privacy through the lens of a carrot or a stick across these three categories of businesses. Um, the stick in this analogy maps very well with uh, compliance regulations and fines. So in heavily regulated industries, such as health tech and fintech, you cannot even begin operating unless you get certified to be compliant. In other industries, you can get massive penalties for misusing customer data. So the carrot in this analogy is uh, viewing privacy, like we discussed, as a product differentiator. Um, now, if you drive on the 101 highway in San Francisco, you'll see many billboards marketing iPhones as devices built for data privacy. Another example is when you uh, download WhatsApp, you'll see that messages sent on WhatsApp are end-to-end -end encrypted. Now, if you really think about it, like encryption and privacy are very interesting choices of words to use for consumer marketing campaigns. This just, in my opinion, ind indicates that the market in general values products and services that prioritize customer privacy, uh, which in turn adds to the brand value and uh, consequently that improves revenue. So I think therein lies the incentive for companies to build a culture of privacy, uh, not just because it's the right thing to do, but also because it directly impacts your revenue. Yeah, I mean, going back to one of the things that you talked about earlier that from an education standpoint, you'll probably see more universities and colleges invest in educating their students in privacy if there's essentially a financial reason to do that because companies are asking them essentially to, to uh, have graduates with a skill set. And it's kind of similar in industry is, you know, it's great for us to be aligned around privacy being an important thing because it's the right thing to do. But really what, you know, moves the needle with a lot of companies is there needs to be a financial reason or, a, you know, return on investment for some of those things as well. Yes. And I think building a culture also of privacy requires a lot of intentional effort across almost every function in the company, right? So for example, it requires uh, company leaders to prioritize and codify privacy as a top initiative. It then requires product teams to design for privacy uh, instead of viewing it as an afterthought. It requires your InfoSec team to operationalize privacy and build practices around education across the company. Then it requires your revenue teams to not compromise on customer trust and then Finally, it requires your marketing teams to build a brand that prioritizes customer trust and data privacy. So there's, there's a lot of investment that needs to go into this space. Yeah, that is uh, very similar to uh, what Anshu Sharma, CEO of Skyflow and the first guest on the podcast had talked about where you know, privacy has to be part of a culture of a business. Everyone has to be bought into prioritizing privacy and making the right decisions that will protect essentially customer data. It's not something that is just uh, you know a check mark in a in a in a launch process 
or something that is done essentially has a sole owner within a business. It's really part of the cultural identity of the business to do it right. Hey there, Sean here. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Partially Redacted. If so, please subscribe so you can always check out the latest episode and help others find the show by leaving a rating and review. Final thing before I get you back to the interview. If you're interested in privacy and security, have a challenge or issue you want to discuss, or want to share your expertise, please join the Partially Redacted community at skyflow.com slash community. All right, now back to the show. So moving away from some of the you know cultural aspects of privacy, Daniel Wong, the head of security and compliance at Skyflow and Google Cloud Architects, Anjali Kutri and Nitin Wushis, both discuss the advantages of moving to the cloud when it comes to things like security. Their argument was that many of the best practices for security are often baked into the products when you when you use the cloud, whether that's from Google, Amazon, or some other public cloud vendor. Additionally, there's you know these cloud agnostic products like like Bridge Crew and cloud specific ones that will scan your code for vulnerabilities, making sure that you're following best practices, you know, not leaving you or not making simple mistakes like leaving an S3 bucket opener or API key within your source code or something like that. So those of us that have lived in the cloud world, it's sometimes easy to forget that most businesses aren't actually on the cloud. And there's many reasons for that, but you do sometimes hear sort of paranoia from a security and privacy perspective with moving your data center to the cloud. What are some of your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I've uh, built my whole career based on cloud technology, so I'm definitely biased here. But I think it's a very powerful technology, uh, which vastly shortens uh, customers' time to market, right, when it comes to launching products. Um, but as uh, Spider-Man's uncle once said, with great power comes great responsibility. I, I think it really applies very well to uh, cloud security as well. Um, prior to the cloud movement, right, security and privacy with respect to technology was confined within the boundaries of a physical office. So employees used to typically check into work and access data through wired desktops that had access to mainframes. So in this world, uh, if you protected your boundary, you sort of protected your data. Uh, and this general notion of someone infiltrating your boundary was not a very common concept. Um, but the whole cloud revolution has kind of flipped this notion on its head. So now employees, if you look at a typical big large-scale enterprise company, employees can bring their own device, they can access data and process information remotely. And the whole pandemic has just um, fastened this whole move towards the cloud. Um, now this requires, I think, a paradigm shift in the company's uh, security posture. So I think it first starts with uh, foolproof authentication system using best practices for multi-factor authentication. Then it requires you to implement a data governance framework with data minimization and intent-based access principles baked in. Now you couple that with audit logging, threat and anomaly detection tooling, and you have a pretty good framework to implement uh, cloud security. In, in this sort of boundary, boundaryless world, um, I think the concept of zero trust, which is to never trust and always verify, also becomes important. So now it might seem like a lot, but the good news is there are world-class tools out there in the market that can help you accomplish all of this without you having to build your own. This just means that you can hire a world-class security team to protect your data at the fraction of the cost. Yeah, I think you know one of the things you mentioned there was this, you know, using the quote from from Spider-Man, is that the impact of 
you know, a security mistake uh, inside the cloud is is really the scale of that impact, and also the fact that everything's connected. So potentially, someone has you know a bad actor can essentially access things remotely, whereas in an on-prem world, they maybe have to physically actually be at the office in order to access that information. So it's really a shift in the way that a company needs to think. But the advantage of that, as you mentioned, is the speed to go to market and the fact that you can, if you're using the right tools and the best in class tools, you can essentially hire or take advantage of the best security people in the world without actually having to hire them. Yes, that's right. And there's also this notion of every company is becoming a technology company. So uh, companies who typically migrate to the cloud have the added advantage of using the best in class tools for every single part of their business, whether it's uh, customer facing authentication or whether it's customer support and so on. Yeah, speaking of authentication, I think one of my favorite episodes I did in the past year was with uh, Nick Hodges from Passage.id, which has uh, recently been acquired by 1Password. And it was about password authentication or passwordless authentication. And I absolutely love the idea of getting rid of passwords and replacing it with some kind of biometric authentication. Uh, the you know the web authn standard allows anyone to essentially create passwordless authentication and companies like Passage are making this super easy for anyone to incorporate into their product with very little effort. So Ashley, do you think we'll ever get rid of passwords fully? Uh, in an ideal world, yes, uh, but these changes will take time. Um, so identity authentication, I think, is a fundamental concept to how the internet works today. And changing that will require a lot of momentum and cross-platform support. But I think more importantly, it also requires a change in consumer behavior, which is not very easy to accomplish at the scale of the internet. So this is where I think building a seamless user experience across devices and platforms is key for enabling mass adoption. Yeah, and I think a lot of the biometric systems, you know, they really depend on having a fairly advanced smartphone which, you know, I think slows down, potentially slows down adoption in certain parts of the world where they might not have access to, um, you know, as up-to-date device or even as much access from remote locations in terms of uh, having data access. Yep. Do you, do you think that there's any concerns besides the ones I mentioned in terms of moving to a, you know, biometric-based authentication system? I think I have no concerns in particular, but I think... Uh... In general, using a biometric marker like your face is way easier than remembering a string of characters. But in general, it's proven that, for example, face ID is more secure than a touch ID. Um, but I think the challenge with implementation of these systems is uh, cross-device and cross-platform compatibility. For example, what happens when you switch device or devices or lose a device, for example. Right, yeah. You know, one of the most popular episodes I did this year was with uh, Bjorn Ovik, head of FinTech at Skyflow, where we talked about PCI compliance and you know how to offload it, PCI tokenization, how to use multiple payment systems but remain PCI compliant, and you know, a bunch of other topics related to payment processing. So PCI DSS has forced the industry to pay close attention to how they handle credit cards and companies like Stripe have made it super easy for businesses to process payments without having to build PCI compliant infrastructure. Do you think we'll see a similar industry-wide motivation to offload handling of other sensitive customer data to third-party systems designed to not only be compliant, but also secure? Um, 
Yes, uh, I think although compliance and security are not the same thing, I think they're two sides of the same coin. Uh, what we're seeing in the market is a move towards more reg regulation across the board, across industries, across geographies and so on. And now if you take a closer look at GDPR, right, as a compliance regulation, you'll see that data minimization and storage limitations are key principles here. Um, basically, com companies should be only collecting data for which they have a genuine business need for, and they should not be storing such data indefinitely. Now, these principles remain the same when implementing security best practices as well. Now, we are seeing a similar set of compliance requirements across the globe in India, in Singapore, in UAE, in California, and so on. I personally believe in a future where we can clearly outline and be very prescriptive from a technical point of view uh, on how we should store and process different kinds of sensitive data, such as contact information, medical records, and PII, and so on. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, one of the things that uh, I had been thinking about from the conversation with Bjorn was this idea that businesses as a scale, a lot of them want to diversify the number of payment processors they rely on. Um, but at the same time, they might be vendor locked into a processor like Stripe or Adyen or you know one of the other ones available. So they have to go through some sort of painful migration process to essentially diversify their payment stack. Do you think that this is something that earlier stage companies will start to become more aware of this problem and look at storing credit cards in a vendor agnostic PCI compliant platform that supports orchestration to any payment processor. This 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 specific question is a little tricky because I think from a early stage company's perspective, I think their primary objective is to get to market as quickly as possible. And many times it means that working directly with a vendor. Um, but oftentimes, as they scale, they probably want to support multiple different payment vendors and they undergo a, a huge painful migration. Uh, now, if you, in hindsight, if you look back and if you had to redesign or re-architect a system with scalability as a first principle, you would probably invest in a um, vendor agnostic PCI compliant solution, which basically stores all your credit information and has connectivity to these third-party services that can process information. I get what you're saying about, you know, wanting, you have to optimize for go-to-market, especially like an early stage uh, company. And if you don't survive the, uh, you know, your first year or first couple of years, because you don't have any customers or it takes you too long to develop your product, it doesn't really matter if you, uh, you're never going to get the, essentially the opportunity to run any scale problems. But I feel like part of it could be do founders even recognize this as a potential problem or are they just thinking about oh this is just the way that essentially you handle payments yeah i think that's where i think there's a lot of education that needs to be done in the market in terms of so for example if you were to operate a fintech business right um i think one of the first questions you got to ask yourself is is it going to be a u.s focused business or are you planning to operate globally in the future now like certain kind of business questions when asked uh, when you're initially designing the product can help you uh, come to the right architecture. Um, and also like questions around scale and um, and so on can also help. Right. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, tooling, the right tooling that uh, um, becomes well known, just like yeah, Stripe has become well known essentially. So 
some of the first episodes that we put out were focused on explaining privacy specific concepts like tokenization, differential privacy, encryption key management. And these are some of the you know most popular episodes. So I, you know, I, I should probably do more. What topics do you think that I should cover for next year? I think from a very practical perspective, I think more interviews around how different companies across industries are setting up their organizations uh, for uh, better privacy and security will be very interesting. Um, another interesting topic would be to talk about consent enforcement. So I think there, there are a lot of tools out there that capture uh, consent, but there's not much information on how you enforce consent when it comes to data sharing or data deletion requests. I think these sort of requests can become very challenging as many com companies have sensitive data replicated acro across multiple services. So now, say for example, you have a customer that requests their data to be deleted. Now you'd have to go and figure out where does this data sit with respect to all the hundreds of different services that you might use internally. And how do you go in about deleting that? Yeah, I talked to someone recently, um, uh, a product manager from a, a company I won't uh, name, but they, they he told me that whenever they get a deletion request, it costs them somewhere between five and $10,000 to actually process that deletion request because they have to put some, you know, they basically have to task an engineer with tracking down where that data is and all the various silos within the company. Yeah, it's, it's from a technology perspective, it's a very complicated problem to solve with the current approach of replicating sensitive data across services. Mm -hmm. So beyond those topics, do you think that, are there you know technologies in the space of privacy that you're particularly excited about that or maybe, you know, maybe they're five or 10 years away from actually being a reality in the industry? Yes, definitely. Uh, but in general, I'm just very excited about the increased awareness around data privacy across the world. Um, but from a purely technology perspective, there are three key trends I'm personally interested in. One is um, this ability to run analytical queries on encrypted data. So now currently in the market, you see things like homomorphic encryption that allow you to do that, but these techni techniques are not very scalable. So basically, how do we build towards better performance and scale um, when running these queries uh, can have really direct impact on uh, businesses storing information. Uh, I think two is um, commercial availability and usage of uh, privacy preserving techniques, um, such as like differential privacy, and secure multi-party computation and so on. Uh, I think we're a couple of years away from it being um, adopted at a, on a wide scale. And I think three is a more prevalent usage of um, this concept of uh, secure enclaves, which basically is a CPU hardware level isolation and memory encryption in every server um, used to pr process sensitive data. So, which means that um, your services that handle sensitive data are actually isolated from internal employees. So it can help protect your company from insider threats. Yeah, I definitely think, uh, well, I think all those are really interesting. I think the you know, confidential computing or the, the work in the secure enclave is something that seems uh, like it's, it's an area that's really emerging and becoming really hot right now. But I, I agree, I think it's a few years away before we see a lot of practical applications of it. Yep, there's a lot of work to be done here, but uh, yeah. really exciting times for privacy in general. Yeah, for sure. So I'm gonna transition to answer, uh, we can answer a few uh, of audience questions that were sent in. So 
the first one here was, uh, why did you start this podcast? So you as in me. So I'll take that one <laughs> since it's directed uh, directly at me. But essentially, I wanted to actually to do a podcast in privacy and security before I even joined Skyflow because I you know, felt like that there was a need for a show like this, a show that kind of brings together cross-functional experts in privacy and security to share their knowledge and educate the market. And of a lot of the privacy-related podcasts I saw, a lot were more focused on privacy as a compliance requirement or maybe the legalities of privacy, which I get and makes sense. And we've had some shows related to that, but I really wanted to make this podcast more focused on the technical or engineering aspects of data privacy and security. And um, I also think that, you know, as you learn more and more about uh, privacy is something that, you know, you get more excited about. So it's something that I was really happy to do. And I, I think um, uh, I set an ambitious goal of trying to do a interview a week. And uh, so far, things have been going well, and I'm really excited to continue it next year. So the another question here is, we know that privacy engineering is an emerging cross-functional profession. It's early days, and CMU is capturing the sentiment in some of the programs they offer. But we're not seeing this kind of momentum in the North American academic landscape at large. Is there any push on the educational front to deal with this huge gap? So we touched on this a little bit. But uh, Ashley, do you have anything else to add to this? Um, not in particular, but I think it's not just the responsibility of educational institutions. I think the market, the customers, the public in general all play a part here. Yeah. So I will say that, you know, University of Victoria, which was uh, the, the university I did my PhD at, we have, um, you know, doc they recently hired Dr. Yun Liu, who was on the show and her expertise is in differential privacy. And she's now teaching a graduate course on privacy, which I actually gave a guest lecture to. And I've been seeing more grad courses in data privacy. So I would love to see undergrad courses as well, but I think it's something that you're starting to at least see in computer science advanced degrees as well. Uh, quick question here, how do I suggest a, t a guest or topic? Well, you can do that by emailing partially redacted at skyflow.com, or you can contact me on Twitter or in our uh, partially redacted community, skyflow.com slash community. And then let's see here, last question. What's your favorite episode and why? Ashley, do you have a favorite episode? I really enjoyed the episode with Pramod on how Coinbase uh, has its, implements its security practices. I also enjoyed the episode on differential privacy. Yeah, those were those were great. I, I think uh, Pramod was great. I'd love to have him back. Um, it's it's hard for me to pick a favorite episode. It was like asking me to which which of my kids is my favorite. Uh, is it possible? But I I will say that I really enjoyed the episode I did with Dan from Edge Impulse on machine learning and privacy with edge devices. I just think that whole space of edge computing is super fascinating. And Dan's a friend. I think he's a fantastic speaker and interviewee. So it was really fun to like, dive into this like somewhat niche area of machine learning. So definitely check that out. And uh, one of the things that he talked about that I never really thought about was how machine learning on these remote edge devices can actually improve privacy. Because since the devices themselves can perform inference, if you had a device deployed to some remote area that was trained to recognize, let's say, a snow leopard, then it will actually only store the data where it sees a snow leopard. So even if someone walked by, 
the device might see them, but the footage will be ignored because the ML model won't recognize the person essentially as a snow leopard. So I thought that was a really interesting application of machine learning at the edge that actually improves the uh, privacy posture of the device and, and whatever sort of study they're doing. All right. Well, Ashley, do you have anything else that you want to share at this time? Uh, nothing in particular, but uh, in general, I feel like there's a huge momentum towards um, building better practices around privacy and security. Uh, I think I'm really excited about the trend about privacy and security being more of a technological concern rather than a compliance concern. So I'm really excited for what's uh, what's in store for us as an industry here. Yeah, absolutely. And that was well said. I think that's a good place to leave it. But Ashley, thanks so much for, for joining me today. I think this was uh, much better than me just talking to uh, the microphone by myself, uh, sharing my thoughts on this. So I think this was a much more interactive format. And I appreciate you coming on and uh, and sharing your, your thoughts and your wisdom and your background with us. Always a pleasure, Sean. Thank you.